Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litbeck, and I'll be your host today. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Scott Dr. Scott Heerman about his book, The Alchemy of Slavery, Human Bondage and Emancipation in Illinois Country, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Dr. Heerman is an assistant professor of history at the University of Miami. The Alchemy of Slavery examines how slavery and emancipation developed in the Illinois country from the 18th century through the 19th century. Drawing on the region's mixed legacies of Native American, French, Spanish, English, and eventual American rule, Dr. Heerman shows how the deep history of Illinois country influenced slavery and set it apart from the slavery that we commonly see in the eastern seaboard of North America. Dr. Heerman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this project? Why did you choose to study it? Well, this is one of these projects that sort of chose me. Um, I, early on in graduate school, was interested in a series of questions about enslavement um, across multiple different imperial boundaries, sort of what was in vogue at the time was a comparative history of enslavement that looked at, you know, Spanish and French and British and to a lesser extent in, in these literatures I was reading, Dutch and Portuguese uh, slave practices. And I was interested in how people who were traveling around the Atlantic world or traveling sort of through different port systems or traveling across imperial lines would navigate what enslavement would look like. Um And so I began looking for places that would be interesting, that would sort of work. And I thought, well, you know, the French in Illinois, this is one example. And, you know, particularly the lower Mississippi Valley was of interest to me. And then I sort of got on this kick where I thought, ah, well, there was slavery in Illinois in the 18th century. Isn't that weird? Um, Okay, fine. We can can add that to the mix. Um, And then as I kept working on the project, I kept realizing uh, there was slavery in Illinois in the 19th century. That, in fact, all of these different empires that I just mentioned, I mean, not the Portuguese, but the French, Spanish, British, and American, all claimed the region and all had different ideas of enslavement. So rather than sort of tracing a a comparative history of slavery, I could tell an an entangled history of slavery, a, a place where various different idioms of enslavement were all operating on the ground one right after another. And in, and in short, it would be a sort of microcosm for what were at the time, and I, and I think still to this day, really pressing questions about the varieties of enslavement uh, around, around North America and around the Atlantic world. And speaking about, you know, these varieties of enslavement, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book was how it really kind of challenged our notions about what slavery is, what it looked like, and how it developed. And one of the things that you say in the beginning of your book is that to understand slavery in Illinois country and how it developed, we need to set aside our notions that slavery is an institution. You know, we often refer to it as the institution of slavery. But you say that's not exactly true in this part of in this part of North America. So why? Yeah. I mean that that particular passage and I think that sort of central argument of the book comes from my attempt to reconcile in scholarship and and in the in the archive what are arguments about how different institutions of enslavement would function. And so we have indigenous slavery as the sort of kin-based captivity system, or we have, you know, Atlantic slavery as a sort of racialized system of chattel bondage, uh, all sorts of uh, penal slavery, you know, the, the convict leasing systems, some might throw in the modern day prison system, contemporary forms of human trafficking, right? That there's, there's ways to talk about slavery as various different institutions. But in Illinois, you couldn't really apply any one of them at any given time, right? And so as I was tracking uh, in the arc, I mean, this idea came to me as I was tracking through the archives, what different enslaved people did, right? What did enslaves of African descent do? What did slaves of uh, indigenous descent do? How how were servants functioning, right? I wanted to to see if there were sort of divisions along these lines in in the labor markets. And I would come across these accounts that said, you know, 
my slave rowed me across the river. And I had to sit there and ask myself, well, who is that person, right? Who is this slave? Uh, slave in this time and place could mean uh, a, a woman, a captive indigenous woman trafficked into the region, or a man uh, either. Uh, could be a person of African descent born into inheritable bondage. Could have been a slave from Kentucky brought into Illinois for a lifelong servitude uh, system, which we can we can get into. Um, it, it could be any number of people, right? And so as I was sitting there trying to fill in the blanks of who are these slaves, it became clear to me it was impossible to answer that with any certainty because the identities and the experiences with enslavement didn't fall out around any one idiom. And that, in fact, slavery was not an institution, right? That doesn't mean it didn't have a definition, uh, but it wasn't one thing that operated according to the same logic over and over again in a sort of fixed, predictable way uh, over time. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that because for for me, I like to think about the amount of work that it took just to uphold slavery. And because of how much work it took and, you know, just, you know, on a practical matter, how large the United States would come to be. And, you know, as it's developed, as uh, Illinois country is kind of changing hands and everything like that, you know, we're, we're talking about so many different people, uh, peoples, and, you know, just a, a far reach of uh, land that having, you know, a sort of formalized, you know, strict uh, system that is coherent everywhere would be just practically impossible. Yeah, I mean to to put that another way, I mean there's a sort of debate going on right now in in the pages of the New York Times and and elsewhere among scholars uh marking the sort of uh, anniversary of 1619 of you know when did slavery really become slavery and sort of tracing out these laws and sort of figuring out the abolition uh the the origins debate. And then you know there's also this debate among scholars in the 19th century of when did freedom really become freedom, right? I mean, when did when did slavery really become abolished? Uh, when can we point to a, a, a break? And for me, I found it really liberating to not have to find that line, right? To not figure out what is the essence of either of these things and then look for it in the archives. What I thought instead is if we can simply think of slavery as a coercive set of practices that rendered people sort of transactable um, and, and made their condition lifelong, if not inheritable, then we could begin to talk about slavery in a certain way without necessarily getting into the, the sort of never-ending origins and abolition discussions that go on, right? That, that if it has to be one thing, then finding that operating in the archive for me was actually very, very difficult. And I found that I could write a very different history of the slavery to freedom story for this region uh, once I sort of set aside the structures that, that I think too often pr prevail in the scholarship. And in terms of, you know, telling, you know, this different history of uh, slavery and enslavement, how does telling the story of slavery from the interior of the North American continent, as opposed to the Atlantic coastline that a lot of people may be familiar with, how does that change the story? Sure. I mean, it, it, it does in many ways, but I think the, the most important of which are understanding that so many different empires were vying for control of North America. And that when we focus our attention on the eastern seaboard, we can tell the sort of British colonial story. And slavery within the British Empire, within North America, within the 50 or 60 years in the run-up to the American Revolution, I mean, it, there's variety to be sure, but it's a relatively coherent category. Um, when we expand to look at the heart of the North America, we understand that it, slavery is in fact a, a very messy category. And so that's one thing that allows us to do is just understand that the experiences of enslavement were so different uh, across North America. The second thing that it does is help us keep the story of indigenous enslavement alive uh, 
much, much later. That typically we see indigenous enslavement as a phenomenon of the 17th century or maybe the early 18th century, that there's a sort of transition to African chattel slavery such that by the end of the 18th century, uh, indigenous enslavement is something that's sort of relegated to the, to the trans-Mississippi West or, 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 or somewhere else. When in fact, indigenous enslavement continues well through the 18th and into the early 19th century in Illinois because it has a very different colonial history. All of this then allows us to think very differently about the, spa- the colonial spaces that then give rise to the United States, right? The, now it's very much in vogue to use this hashtag of vast early America. Um, and, in, and in some ways, this project is part of that, right? It's to say that the United States and the identities and, and polities and geographies that would come to, come to define it cropped up out of a set of colonial experiences so much more diverse than just the British colonies. And looking at slavery in the heart of North America allows us to see that history. The second thing then that we see very different when we foreground the center of, uh, uh, of North America is we can trace these colonial histories into the 19th century in really continuous ways. So at the end of the book, then, we have people like Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas debating over the nature of slavery and freedom. That's not surprising. What is surprising is they're debating the nature of slavery and freedom within Illinois, because they are involved in the very tail end of the emancipation debates over the the French Negroes, this legal, fictionalized legal category of people supposedly descended from when the French claimed the Illinois country. And so their ideas about slavery and freedom come out of that colonial context. You know, what this crystallized for me recently when I was reading this uh, review in the New York Review of Books, maybe a month ago or so, that said abolitionists of the the Republican Party of the 1850s and 1860s developed their ideas in societies that had long ago abolished slavery. And that's certainly true for New York or or, or Massachusetts. It's not the case for Illinois. It's not the case uh, for the center of North America. And of course, this is where not only where Lincoln is from, but this is where the Republican Party is founded. It's founded in Wisconsin as their their sort of first meeting. Um, And so we understand that ideas about abolition and ideas about freedom national emerge out of a context where enslavement was still operating, out of a context that was grappling with the many different types of colonialism that would give rise to slave economies in North America and within the United States. In short, it just gives us a much broader canvas to understand the slavery to freedom story and explain, I think, with more detail how this nation goes, uh, this nation goes from one, you know, dedicated to uh, to slavery, to a nation more or less dedicated to its eradication by the by the eighteen fifties and sixties. And one point that I found interesting there was your discussion um, just now and in the book about you know the mixed legacies um, of enslavement and you know as you said the the ability when looking at slavery in Illinois country to you know, continue the story about Native American enslavement past where it is usually told. And in terms of, you know, that discussion, one of the things that I found interesting was also kind of your discussion of how uh, enslaved Africans and African Americans are kind of introduced into the region um, and how, you know, in many cases you would have find enslaved Africans and enslaved Native Americans in the same place. And so how did enslaved African-Americans come into the region? And, you know, what did that look like? You know, was it something that was, you know, initially kind of, you know, did people welcome it? Did people not? You know, was it natural in a a kind of quote unquote natural way? You know, what what was it like? Yeah, I mean, so the the first enslaved people of African descent uh, who came into what would eventually be called Illinois uh, were were trafficked there, largely up the Mississippi River from New Orleans. When the region known as the Illinois Country, which today is you know we can the, we can think about you know as the suburbs of St. Louis, 
um, although St. Louis wasn't a city then, of course, um, they were brought there uh, from uh, New Orleans as part of this attempt to make Illinois a strategic outpost connecting sort of two arms of the French Empire, Canada and, and Louisiana and the French Caribbean, right? And that the Illinois country was extraordinarily and is extraordinarily rich farm field, uh, for, uh, agricultural lands. Um, and so enslaved Africans were brought there to grow grain uh, and export it into an international market. This is not terribly strange uh, in the 1830s, 40s, or 50s. But that idiom of enslavement had to confront head on the reality that slavery was indigenous. It was not imposed on the region. And that there were forms of raiding, uh, of captivity, of captive exchange that predated the French arrival in the region that the French then had to participate in. And so, and that system of captive raiding, I should be clear, was, you know, is very well known about in my book, uh, before my book came out, as is the sort of French colonial uh, agricultural story. What I'm trying to suggest, though, is that we look at the relationships between indigenous and African descended people as central, not as peripheral, right? And that scholars that have looked at this to date will sort of mention these uh, interactions in suggestive ways or, or, or talk about them in passing, but won't really structure their analysis around them. I'm much more interested in, in thinking about how a single heterogeneous enslaved population took root in Illinois. Um, which it certainly did, because indigenous and African-descended people intermarried with each other. They worked in the same fields. They traveled on the same convoys for months at a time. And this then gives us, I think, a very different picture about what a much older literature would have called creolization. That is to say, the linguistic adaptation, the cultural adaptation. Um, that's particularly vivid in this, in this setting. Um, and then it goes on over time. So when the British claim the region and they bring, bring uh, enslaved people there, these are not French speakers, right? They, if they speak any Euro, uh, uh, European language, they would be speaking English. Uh, they're certainly not Catholics if they're coming from Jamaica, uh, while many of the African-descended and indigenous slaves uh, in the French Empire were baptized in the Catholic Church or, or had their children baptized in the Catholic Church. And so once again, you would have to sort of see an adaptation to enslavement uh, as now the British were there. And we can continue the story as the Americans claim the region and bring sort of African-Americans uh, from Kentucky or, or, or Virginia. Once again, there'd be a very different set of understandings of, uh, of what slavery is. And so over over decades, what you see is African-descended slaves and eventually African-Americans having to adapt to the sort of many slaveries of North America. And this then is that entangled history of enslavement that I'm so interested in, rather than telling a, a comparative story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to think about the ways in which, you know, slavery existed there beforehand and how it develops differently um, over time. And speaking of that development, you know, as you were just talking about and as your book is pointing out, you know, you're you're studying the development of slavery and emancipation. And those two things aren't exactly you know, there's not, it's not exactly a linear process where you're going straight from uh, enslavement to freedom over time, you know, one step in, uh, forward all the time. And part of this complicated story is the Northwest Ordinance. And so for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, could you briefly explain what the Northwest Ordinance is and what, uh, in, uh, what slaveholders did to, how did they confront it? Sure. So quite simply, the Northwest Ordinance is a legal code of the U.S. empire, right? It is passed, the most famous of them, there's several of them, the most famous of them is passed in 1787. Uh, it claims uh, what will eventually be the states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin and Illinois, 
uh, as U.S. territory. It sets up a framework for becoming states, creates townships. I mean, does all sorts of things of imperial governance. It also makes the region free soil. It says slavery and involuntary servitude shall not be allowed in the region, excepting for the punishment of a crime duly convicted. And it, it has a fugitive slave provision as well, that any person that runs the region would have to be returned. So scholars have debated why this was written in certain ways, sort of what its impact was, how it could be enforced, how it could be invaded, evaded. And, you know, my contribution to this debate uh, is, are several. The first is, there sort of, it sort of is an assumption that this law should have had an immediate effect, right? That if Congress passes a law banning slavery, pretty soon slavery is going to be going to be disappearing. Um, and there's a sort of shock among scholars that slavery could su survive despite the law. Well, that's maybe surprising if we think about the Northwest Ordinance as a domestic law. Maybe it's not, as, as the new literature on, on local legality is telling us, but maybe it is. Um, but it's not terribly surprising when we take it seriously as an imperial document. If I told you the French Code Noir dictated exactly how slavery was going to function in Martinique, I hope you would not believe me. If I told you the Spanish Siete Partidas said exactly how slavery was going to function in any of Spain's colonies, Similarly, you should be skeptical. So why is it that the U.S. imperial regulations about slavery should be followed? When we think about it, there's actually nothing terribly surprising that the Northwest Ordinance did not abolish slavery in the region with, with one stroke. So that's one contribution, is to think of it very seriously as part of the story of overlapping empires. The other thing to contribute then uh, is to understand that if slavery is an institution, it can be abolished by laws, right? Quite simply. All sorts of institutions can be abolished by laws. If slavery is an ever-adapting and innovating system of coercion, then it actually becomes very difficult to abolish it by law. Because what, what is slavery, right? You can begin to litigate this at a, at a local level saying, well, this person isn't a slave for the following reasons. This person doesn't meet the legal definition of slavery as set out by whatever code you might want to point to, right? That the same problem of, uh, of scholars of, around the origin debate of when does slavery really become slavery, when we set that aside, we understand that masters were very much relying on the ambiguity of enslavement to keep it alive in the wake of the Northwest Ordinance. All of that means that slaveholders then created this system of, uh, created this category of French Negroes. So the French Negroes uh, are a group of people, supposedly slaves, brought to the region when the French Empire claimed it and grandfathered in, exempted from abolition by terms of the Northwest Ordinance. Uh, that same exemption would be extended into Illinois' first state constitution of 1818, which said slavery and involuntary servitude shall not hereafter be introduced into the state. So there's this exemption made for French Negroes. But what my book shows, and what should be clear from this discussion, is that the French Negroes were not all Francophone, and they were not uniformly of African descent. Instead, creating the French Negroes is the alchemy of slavery, right? It's creating a completely fictional, legal, political, racial category of people who can be enslaved. And it's turning a diverse group of bondsmen and women into, theoretically, a homogeneous group of bonds people so that it can be legible under U.S. Uh, racial idioms under U.S. law and U.S. political cultures. And so by creating the French Negroes, masters exempt all of these people from enslavement. But what they're doing is adapting to new slave laws and new slave uh, uh, politics, just as they had been doing when the French arrived 
in the in territory that was owned by the Illinois nation, just as the British were doing when they were in territory owned by the French and the Illinois nations. What right? I mean that this is just another story of the reinvention of enslavement. This time happening when the U.S. Empire is claiming the region. Yeah, I mean, there's so much interesting things going on there in what you just said in terms of, you know, one, I think, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about scholarship coming out uh, in more more recent years is that there is more of a turn to look at the U.S. during this early period as opposed to, say, at the turn of the 20th century as an empire. And thinking about the Northwest Ordinance as kind of an imperial decree in the same way as the French and the Spanish laws that you mentioned um, is a really interesting way of thinking about it and why it didn't really work. Um, it's kind of one of the great things uh, or one of the big things that you always see in scholarship on slavery is that, you know, the Northwest ordinance comes, you know, it's famously advocated by people like Thomas Jefferson who owns a lot of slaves, but doesn't want slavery to expand into, you know, the West supposedly. Um, but then no one actually follows through. Uh, and, in terms of, like you just said as well with the French Negroes, you know, there's so much going on in terms of trying to make slavery into something that, you know, it hadn't exactly been. And so one of the things that I just I find so interesting about your book is just the way it kind of weaves together all of these very complicated narratives into what I consider, at least myself, a very, very readable text that's describing, you know, how Illinois is this kind of unique place for slavery to develop. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's, what's so, what was challenging in writing the book and what's so challenging to think about is there's a, a temptation, at least by me, and I think by some other scholars, to sort of just lean into the blurriness. Say, well, it was all of these different things to all of these different people and all of these different empires, and who really knows? And slavery and freedom is not a binary, and it's all very blurry, and it's all very muddy. And that's all very true. But I think at the end of the day, locally on the ground, in case files um, for freedom suits, in petitions, in letters... People knew or thought they knew who was a slave and who wasn't. There is a sort of line there on the ground. There's, there was no individual that I, could, that I could find where everyone sort of looked around and scratched their head and says, boy, we don't really know. It's muddy. Now, it could be contested, right? You could have a master saying this person is a slave and a, a whole community saying this person isn't, right? That, that happened all the time. But nevertheless, there was still this category of, of slavery, right? And so it, I really had to press myself, and I think it's important in the scholarship to say, notwithstanding all of the complicating factors, which are, which are many, we sort of can't punt and just sort of say, well, it's all, it's all negotiated. It, it is all negotiated, but someone wins those negotiations, someone loses those negotiations, uh, those negotiations get resolved at least temporarily before they're reopened again, right? That at, at the end of the day, there are real questions about power uh, operating on the local level here and, and at the national level as well. And so part of what was very important to me, and I think part of what I'm implicitly saying in the book is, you know, we can't always just revel in the messiness. We have to argue as best as we can, as convincingly as we can, how any category, in this case, slavery, operates, notwithstanding its, its complexity. And, you know, thinking about the, you know, the things that are happening on the ground, you know, that, you know, there's specificity going on, that there's specific actions that are causing, you know, specific consequences. What in the Illinois country um, is sort of driving slavery to kind of come to the region? You know, you, you point to a few factors that sort of, you know, almost kind of uh, push slavery into Illinois country as long as, as well as pull uh, slavery there. So what's going on there? Well, that of course changes over time, right? In the 18th century, it's, it's 
you know, an export economy where labor is quite scarce and land is quite plentiful. Um, that slavery would exist there is not terribly surprising. Um, in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, um, once again, it's it's not an export economy necessarily, although it has an important export sector. Um, but in the wake of U.S. empire, this this process, which gets called settler colonialism, which is an abstraction that I don't love, um, but you know, nevertheless, it, it is useful in this context. What what we might call settler colonialism sends tens of thousands of people flooding into the state. And hundreds, if not thousands of them, bring their slaves with them. These are people coming from Kentucky, people coming from Tennessee, people coming from Virginia, right? There's this sort of way that the migration story in Southern Illinois makes the sort of Southern region of the state, or what's today the Southern third of the state, look much more like the upper South than it does any other part of the country. And so that's a land and labor story, right? Um, that's a story of U.S. expansion and of U.S. empire. Sort of drives populations to, to settle in this region. Um, that's not terribly unique to Illinois. I mean, in some ways, there's a surprising... People are sometimes surprised that, you know, Illinois, you know, slavery went that far north. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, well, in some ways, slavery is not bound by any one climate or any one geography. It's, it's land, labor, economics. I mean, these are the factors that drive uh, the, tur the turn to slave societies or societies with slaves. And Illinois, Illinois sort of fit that, fit that criteria. And in terms of, you know, some of the factors that are going on in Illinois itself, um, you know, one thing that I, I found interesting, uh, and I, I, I feel like a lot of people might not know about this, is, and in terms of speaking about how slavery doesn't exactly, you know, have to operate in a specific climate, you know, i.e. the South, uh, you speak about how salt mines became important. So what's going on there? Yeah. So the 1803, the U.S. government uh, uses its treaty power to extort huge swaths of land from the Shawnee Nation. Um, and it turns this into the U.S. Saline. These are U.S. salt mines, uh, salt marshes, actually. I'll get into that in a second. Um, where salt is produced, right? Salt's an important commodity in the 19th century. It preserves uh, animal products, uh, beef, pork, and what have you. It's a, it's you know sort of a ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, item that's necessary for all sorts of economies. And so it begins to set up these salt marshes, and these are in southeastern Illinois, just across the river from Kentucky, modern-day Pope Gallatin counties, uh, Gallatin mostly. So um, this is a place where, right, land is abundant, labor is very scarce, because what you have to do to harvest salt in these marshes is uh, find subterranean salt creeks, right, running over the limestone, dig wells by hand, 50, 60 feet in the ground, uh, wells easily collapsed on people, haul the brine up, put it over uh, these kettles that you have to stoke with fire. You have to stir the brine, reduce it down to crystals, uh, then, you know, skim impurities, pack it, right? This is dangerous, dangerous, arduous work. There are runaway slave advertisements in Illinois newspapers that talk about people have being scalded, presumably from these, these salt works. Um, you know, no one's going to do this work if they can possibly avoid it. And so the Illinois first, Illinois first state constitution allowed until 1825 masters from Kentucky to hire their slaves into Illinois without forfeiting title to them for up to a year if they were working in the salt marshes. And so there was an explicit provision in, in Illinois law that allowed people from Kentucky um, or, or anywhere else, but mostly Kentucky to sell their, uh, to hire their slaves into this economy. Um, and so this pocket of Southern Illinois, uh, as late as 1820, 
uh, had, you know, roughly 10% of the population was, was enslaved. And when we include hiring out, slave labor then ticks up even, even higher than that. So it looks a lot like any other society with slaves, right? It looks like Western North Carolina or, or upcountry Georgia. Now it's a, it's a small pocket of the state to be sure, but nevertheless, uh, into the 1820s and 1830s, the tax on salt is generating up to 20% of Illinois state revenue. So this is an important industry in the state being run almost entirely by slave labor, not a majority by slave labor in some years, entirely in other years, not. And there's an explicit provision that allows the further introduction of enslaved workers into the state in the 18, in the 1820s. And when we're talking about how slavery develops in, uh, in Illinois, and you've, you've kind of talked about this a little bit before, uh, before now, but, when we speak about indentured servants, something that, you know, I think most people who are familiar with, say, their K through 12 education, um, history education, you know, they think of indentured servants as something that, you know, you see in colonial Virginia. And then you just stop hearing about them. But as you point out, you know, indentured servant, indentured servitude um, is something that survives far into uh, the, 18th and into the 19th century, and it's used to sort of morph slavery um, into something else that is still kind of keeping the system alive, um, as you've said earlier. So how is this happening? And then as you point out, while this is still trying to keep people enslaved, it does give them certain pathways towards expressing and claiming you know, rights and protections and quite possibly freedom. Yeah. So the, the servitude system in Illinois, um, as servitude systems all over the 19th century, it is a sort of heavily debated, debated uh, issue in the scholarship. So many states, some of them northern states like New York, uh, use servitude as a sort of bridge to freedom, right? Part of their gradual emancipation laws made people bound as servants for a period of time before freeing them. Um, other states didn't do this, right? And, and so these are sort of temporary servitude systems uh, meant to sort of usher people out of bondage and to compensate masters for the loss of their, of their human property, right? So there's a sort of compensation built into the emancipation system in some in some northern states. In in many of these states, New Jersey's an exception here, but in many of these states, there's regulations on what indentureship can look like. You can't pass a 99-year indentureship. You can't, you have to pay people, right? There's all sorts of regulations to keep the system from, from going back into enslavement. No such system exists in Illinois. The Illinois servitude system works really very differently. It is a system designed for people who are coming into the state with their slaves after 1818, so, so, or excuse me, after, after 1800, so you know, sort of late. And it gives them a 30-day window to turn their slaves into servants. Uh, and if they don't do it, they can take their slaves back out of the state without forfeiting title to them. And the theory behind this is it creates a system of voluntary labor, right? They're signing a contract. They're moving from slavery across this threshold into, into servitude. We're not running afoul of the laws anymore. Well, you're asking a slave to sign a contract. This is not voluntary by any, by any definition of the word voluntary. Um, what's more, uh, these servitude contracts could exist for people's natural lives and offer them no payment. So thinking about Illinois servitude system as a sort of bridge to freedom doesn't make a lot of sense in that context. In fact, it's a way to innovate. It's a way to adapt. It's a way to rely on the alchemy of slavery to turn slaves into lifelong unpaid servants who were chattel, who could be sold at auction, uh, whose children were going to be born unfree, right? Um, it's a way simply to keep slavery alive in other guises. However, the system is not airtight, and the system doesn't work in any one way. Once you do this, you also have a case, cases where people then have contracts that they can use to enforce. 
they have certain, very limited to be sure, but certain protections at law that they can sue for their advantage. And, and this happens. What's more, you have contracts that are for very short periods of time, you know, matter of years, um, and offer compensation. And so the, the servitude system works dynamically, right? It, it works and is a sort of at the nexus of the negotiations between masters, slaves, lawmakers, settlers, uh, and, and a whole host of other people who are trying to negotiate the meanings of slavery and freedom in this region, in this time of change. And in some instances, we have 99-year indentureships without pay for these people that have been trafficked into the state. In other instances, we have compensated contracts for two years, right? And so I really try to break out of this either-or discussion of, is it a bridge to freedom? Is it a sort of form of proto-slavery? Well, it's neither, and it's both. And in terms of how, you know, we speak about, you know, kind of getting to freedom, uh, one of the things that you point out in your book is that emancipation, uh, the or I should say the abolitionist movement in Illinois looks quite different than what we might see in, say, New York or Pennsylvania. And so what does uh, abolition, the abolitionist movement in Illinois look like? And what place do African-Americans play in it? Because you point out that, you know, sometimes, you know, free African-Americans are able to, you know, kind of do do things in their own way to kind of fight slavery. Yeah, great question. So the landscape of the abolition movement in Illinois and in other parts of the Midwest, to be sure, is so radically different than what goes on on this East Coast story which is one of the reasons why we need to look seriously at the center of, at the history of slavery and freedom in the center of the continent, and then sort of look outward to the Atlantic, not the other way around. So we typically expect a free African-American community that's active in the abolition movement to live in a city, uh, Boston, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is the best example, but, you know, other New York, We expect them to belong to an anti-slavery institution, the PAS, the NYMS, uh, the AAS later on. Uh, We expect them to be part of publishing newspapers and pamphlets and giving speeches and raising awareness. Um, The examples of this are legion, very well studied by very excellent work. Um, We sort of know this story better than we ever have before. Almost none of that happens in Illinois until the very, very end. And I don't want to say not at all, because there is a free black population in Chicago. There is an anti-slavery society in the state of Illinois. There is an anti-slavery newspaper. And all of that is important. Uh, You know, one of these uh, abolitionist, black abolitionist leaders in in Illinois is on on the cover of my book. This is how important it is. However, Chicago as a city is founded very, very late in the 1830s. The Illinois Anti-Slavery Society does not really take off until the 1840s. It's meeting before then, but it's sort of there only nominally until the 1840s. The anti-slavery newspapers, the Western Citizen, for example, is not published until the 1840s. So we are very, very late in the game before there is any of the sort of typical factors of the abolition movement at work in Illinois. And abolitionists say this all the time, right? I quote someone in my book saying, we're 10 to 15 years behind New York in terms of development, membership, and activism. Instead, the free black community in Illinois lived in the rural districts, lived in southern Illinois. They settled largely in all black towns. And it was there that Uh, the abolitionist impulses began. These free black towns were incubators of emancipation because it was there you could have African-Americans with some money, with some knowledge of the law, with some access to allies, pool all of their resources and help free enslaved people in the state. And one thing that's just surprised me at first, but the more you think about it, the, the more logical it is, these black villages lived in the same districts of Southern Illinois where the so-called French Negroes lived. And so 
it was African-Americans in the rural setting, without the sort of institutional trappings we're so used to, that proved to be an existential threat to slavery in the state. And so I try to decenter the urban print culture story that we know so well, and that is important, and that did exist in the state, and that I'm in no way invalidating, I'm simply adding another story to that mix, another element um, that helped people sort of walk that long and rocky road to abolition. And I guess our, well, second to last question, I'll have one more after this. Um, But for just to know, like, what was the eventual fate of slavery in Illinois? You know, did it continue until the Civil War or did it kind of die out, you know, a quote unquote natural death? What happened? Well, I mean, I think I think that that's the topic for another podcast. But if we understand that slavery is not an institution and it adapts, then you know, we should look seriously today at the penal system. We should look seriously today at forms of human trafficking to ask ourselves if slavery no longer exists in the state. I mean, that's a, that's a serious discussion that, you know, I don't get into in the book, but nevertheless, I think implicit in your question is the notion that slavery is this thing that, that ended at a given point in time. If we redefine slavery uh, as a crime against humanity and not as a, as an institution, then it becomes very difficult to say it can ever be abolished. With that said, the types of enslavement that I talk about in the book generally do wrap up in the 1860s um, with a variety of concerted campaigns led by John Jones, the African-American abolitionist who published pamphlets and, and worked out of Chicago Sort of same story that I, I was just gesturing to. He became influential in repealing the state's black laws, uh, which were used to reduce some African Americans back to bondage. I mean, notably, as, as late as 1864, you have a man who is found for being violating the black laws. He is sentenced to slavery. And this goes before the Illinois State Supreme Court. And they say, look, all the laws say the same thing. Slavery and involuntary servitude shall be uh, not permitted in the region, excepting for a crime duly committed. You've committed a crime. There's nothing illegal about your enslavement, right? And they, they uphold him being sent to slavery in 1864. And so this points to the fact that there is not a sort of linear transition from plantation slavery to convict slavery, but these two things overlap and coexist. And so, you know, we can point to the 1860s as a real turning point in in what enslavement looks like, uh, but to say that it ends, I think, I think misses the misses the point that the alchemy of slavery can continue in the wake of the Thirteenth Amendment, so long as we accept that slavery is going to look very different. Yeah, and I I really appreciate that point because I think it's something that, you know, as you said, you know, we could have an entire another podcast on this. And unfortunately, we're not able to do that. But, you know, I think you're you're very much correct in terms of, you know, as you said, I really like to phrase the alchemy of slavery. I should just say that it's it's a really good title. You did a good job on that one. Um, and in terms of a concept, because it really is sort of, you know, just ever shifting, ever transforming institution, um, even as we're kind of not looking at it as an institution um, that, you know, it can just change into something new. Um, and. I find that that's part of what I found so interesting about your book. And, you know, as you just said, it, it kind of doesn't go away. You know, our own constitutional amendment that bars slavery also sanctions slavery. And so, you know, there's something to say about that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that that the repertoires of enslavement can change as laws change. We should not expect laws to dictate what happens on the ground. Um, whether... What's going on today should be called slavery or not is a mu- is a much longer debate that I don't want to enter into just immediately. But I, you know, I don't necessarily want to suggest that there's a, a transition from A to B. Instead, if masters are always innovating and always recreating and always adapting how slavery looks, what? Why should it be terribly surprising? 
that that process continues from the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, giving us, you know, very, very, very different idioms of slavery over time. How can we say categorically that one is the real slavery and one isn't the real slavery? Yeah, totally agree with that. And, you know, like you said, whole other podcast. But I guess to finish this off, you know, we have this great book in front of us. You know, I would encourage everyone to go out and buy it and read it. You know, once again, Scott Herman, The Alchemy of Slavery, Human Bondage and Emancipation in Illinois Country. So we have this great book from you. We've all hopefully read it. Uh, what can we expect from you in the future? It's a great question. I'm currently working on a book project that looks at captivity and kidnapping. The final chapter of this book looks at the kidnapping of freed people out of Illinois and, and into the Deep South. And this began my interest in, in kidnapping projects. But this project looks, a little, looks at kidnapping in a slightly different lens. It looks at people who are kidnapped internationally. So these are free African-Americans detained in slavery, say, in Cuba, or free Afro-Brits from Jamaica being detained in slavery in, say, Texas. So it's a story of slave of re-enslavement and captivity, but internationally. Um, so that's what I'm currently working at, and I'm sort of uh, full on in the archival archival project, and really loving the project. And I can't wait to to publish the book and come back and talk about it with you uh, some more. Yeah, I'm quite certain when that comes out, we will definitely have you back onto the program. I look forward. But for now, uh, thank you very much for coming onto the program. Thank you very much.